listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. Good morning. My name is uh, Greg Morris. I serve on the band. I also lead a small group, and, and I'll go on record as saying... My small group conversation will beat anybody's small group conversations that's out there. All right, we we will we will put it to the test. So come and come and join us when you can, and we'll we'll show you that one. Uh, today I'm going to be reading Luke eighteen thirty five through nineteen, verse ten. Thanks, Kevin. Um, let's see here. As I drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting at the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in, those who were in the front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but but on account for the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said, The Lord, behold, the half of my goods I give to the poor and I have defrauded, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take it with you. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of the journey scene that Luke has laid out for us. The journey from Galilee, Jesus' ministry in the north. We learned that when he set his sight on Jerusalem, that he started making his way to the capital city because there he would be betrayed, rejected, crucified, but on the third day he would rise again. In the verses just previous to what we've read this morning, Jesus told them again, that I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be crucified. But on the third day, I'm going to rise again. And his disciples just continued to not understand because their expectation of what Messiah was supposed to do was to set up his throne, to establish his kingdom, to overthrow what would be Rome at the time, and and to, to reposition the people of Israel as God's primary uh, people in leadership and authority, and then Messiah would rule and reign over the entire world 
with his people at his side, and ultimately all would come and bow the knee to him. Interestingly enough, those are all true statements of the Scripture. Those are all promises that have been foretold about Messiah. It just wasn't going to happen at this coming. That's going to be held for the next coming. This time through, Jesus says, I'm going to do what no one expects. I'm going to become the suffering servant that has confused everyone through the prophets. What does this mean? Who is this person? And how are we to understand him? I'm going to fulfill all that was said about me. But I'm going to do it on a cross. Despised and rejected. And he's almost there. Just a couple of more weeks and we will begin that last section, the Passion Week. We'll look at Luke's next phase in a couple of weeks. But we're coming to the end of the journey scene. Now, you'll remember, we've talked about this you read the other gospels, you'll find that Jesus has been back and forth and back and forth from Galilee to Judea and back to Galilee and then over to the eastern side of the Jordan and up into the northern regions outside of Galilee. And and Jesus traveled in and around all of these places throughout his ministry. But what Luke is doing is he's packaging these scenes in order for the readers to kind of get an understanding of his ministry. So we have the birth narrative, we have the the early part of Jesus' life, and then he moves into the calling of the disciples and the ministry there in Galilee. Lots of miracles, lots of proclamation of the kingdom being at hand. Then he shifted gears and began making his way toward Jerusalem. And in this scene, in this section that Luke has penned for us in these chapters, we've seen a whole lot of instruction, both to those in opposition to Jesus and to his disciples that are around him. We've seen a lot of instruction given to those that are curious, not sure whether they're going to be rejectors or followers. We've seen opposition, certainly we have. We've heard from the opposition We've, we've heard their denouncement, their rejection. Jesus has done a lot of instructing, been a lot of opportunities to interact with those who are making up their mind the question, who is this rabbi, this upstart, this nobody from Nazareth, but who seems to have authority in his mouth like he knew God himself, which we know the end of the story We know that he is God himself, the second person of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternally existing as one God, but in three distinct persons. In this scene, Jesus is going to interact with two guys that nobody cares about. Two guys he's going to come into contact with that nobody in the crowd cares about. And I think we'll learn some lessons both from a national viewpoint, I believe, as Luke was probably positioning these as an announcement to the nation, but, but to all that would hear and see and wonder just exactly who this Jesus is. We're going to see the restoration of the broken, and we're going to see the transformation of the repentant. The first scene that we are, 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 we're seeing this morning in chapter 18 is of a blind man. Now, Mark tells us that this blind man in Mark chapter number 10 has a name. Mark names him Bartimaeus. 
If you read Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 20, you'll learn that there were actually two guys there. But it seems that Luke and Mark only wanted to highlight the one. Possibly it's because of the two blind men. Only the one, Bartimaeus, was the one doing the interacting. We see that as Jesus is coming into or toward Jerusalem, there is a blind man begging for alms. He can't serve himself. He can't work for himself because he can't see. He's going to be in danger. And the worst, uh, the best he can do is just be set along the roadside, hoping that travelers that are coming through would give him alms, give him a donation so that his life might be sustained. It's good that he was near Jericho because Jericho was one of the richest cities in Judea because of the irrigation in the city, because of the great climate that it enjoyed. It was a a rich and bountiful agricultural area. And so it would be a place where many would come from the south going toward Damascus or from the north going toward Egypt. From the, from the east going toward the coastal areas or from the west headed toward the more eastern regions of, of what would have been Syria at the time. And so this was a great area for someone to sit, but at the end of the day, he was still just a beggar. He was still just someone who couldn't fend for himself and was one of the most insignificant individuals in the whole town because he was poor because he was disabled, because he couldn't care for himself, basically everyone ignored him. Those of his own countrymen in the area would have been considering this guy as a nuisance, someone in the way. Luke tells us as Jesus was making his way toward the city of Jericho, which you'll remember from the Old Testament, was the city that the children of Israel marched around for seven days with silence, And then on the seventh day, they marched around it seven times and they blew their trumpets and they screamed. And what happened to the walls of Jericho under the authority of God, Yahweh, the God of of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? The walls came tumbling down. God said, don't ever rebuild this city. So in fact, that city was in ruins. That was old Jericho. The new Jericho was the one Jesus was headed toward. This man was out begging, asking, and he began to hear that there was a large crowd coming. And so he's starting to ask, hey, hey, what's going on? What's, what's with all of the noise I'm hearing? What's with all of the people? Hey, somebody tell me what's happening. And an annoyed passerby says, it's, it's Jesus from Nazareth. He's coming our way. This blind man had evidently heard something about this one from Nazareth. Apparently, this one had listened to because he couldn't see. He had listened to the conversations going back and forth between, I'm sure, those that were followers of Jesus, who were saying, we think he's Messiah and we're going to find him. And he'd probably hear the conversations of those who were rejecting. I can't believe that there are people following this this guy from Nazareth. Don't they know his parents weren't even married when he was born? What a scandal. How could this person be Messiah? He doesn't follow the rules of the the land of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin. He's he's a, a rebel against some of their own traditions. How can this one be Messiah? But apparently this blind man, this Bartimaeus, had made up his mind who this one Jesus was. 
Because he begins to cry out. He doesn't know where he's at in the crowd. But he begins, he begins to cry out. And he's hollering in verse number 38. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You say, what's interesting about the son of David title is that it's a messianic title. It's a title of expectation that not just that Jesus was a descendant of David, which interestingly enough, he was through his adopted father, Joseph, through the legal lineage, he was a descendant of David. And if you read Luke's gospel in the uh, genealogy, you'll learn that through the blood relation, he's related to David through his mama, Mary. So Jesus has the double portion of the lineage of David. No one's going to be mistaken whose tribe this one comes from. It's not just that he was related to David, but that he was the expected king. That would be what Solomon never could be. He would be the one that would rule on his father's throne forever. And so this blind man, apparently having already made up his mind who this Jesus was, began to try to get his attention. Jesus, son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. But as the people came by, they tried to get him to be quiet. Bartimaeus, hush, man. There's too many people. Just just sit down there. He doesn't have time for you. He's got too many things to do. He's got places to be. He's got miracles to perform. You have no business having an audience with him. I imagine that Bartimaeus got up and began to wander toward the crowd. Bumping into and annoying those in the crowd that were trying to get him. Get back. Will you be quiet? We can't hear what he's saying. Luke says, as they rebuked him, he cried out the more. You know what that means, don't you? Bartimaeus started making a scene. Jesus, son of David, I'm over here. Have mercy on me. Be quiet, Bartimaeus. Jesus, Jesus. You go, I'm I'm wondering what the kid's connection thinking right now. Anyway, (laughs) if they come running out, you know what it'll be. He began to make a scene. He was going to be heard. He he was going to do everything he could to have an audience with the son of David, Messiah. Have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and he said, somebody bring him to me. They brought Bartimaeus to him. He got the attention of the, of the one from Nazareth that, that we're all convinced he, he's Messiah. And he says, what do you want me to do for you, man? Of course you know what he wants. Lord, if I could just see again. And Jesus says, we'll see. And immediately at the word of God, Bartimaeus could see. You know, sometimes when Jesus healed, he, he, he reached up and he grabbed and he touched. One time when he healed a blind man, he spit on the ground and made a little mud and rubbed it in his eyes. That's gross. Okay, but at any rate. You say, why would he do that? I have no idea. But here's what I do know. I do know that 
In the beginning, he spoke. And he created out of nothing. And then he gathered up a bunch of dust. And he formed out of the dust a human being. So it doesn't seem all that strange that he might gather up a little dust, make a little mud, and recreate what sin had broken. Maybe, I don't know. But he says to Bartimaeus, well, we'll recover your sight. And immediately he could see. Now, what's interesting are the words that, uh, that follow. Because it says he began to follow him and glorify him. Immediately. And he said to him, your faith has made you well. I think we do an error when we understand Jesus saying that it was Bartimaeus' faith that healed him. I think we do a disservice. Because Bartimaeus had probably had a lot of faith in a lot of things a lot of times. It wasn't Bartimaeus' faith. Just a little more faith, Bartimaeus. A little bit more. You're almost there. A little bit more. Bingo! You can see now. Now, Bartimaeus had faith. In Jesus, who could heal. It was Bartimaeus' faith in him. It was Messiah who healed. But it says immediately he began to do what? Go back home, tell his family. Go back and look at all the things that he'd been stumbling over all his life. Go back and, 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 and get back at all the folks that had made fun of him all those years. No, immediately, what did he do? He started following Jesus and glorifying God for what had been done for him. I think there's some lessons that we can learn from this scene. Lesson number one, Jesus never ignores the sincere cries of those who call upon him in faith. Jesus never ignores the cries of those who sincerely call on him in faith. You say, I've been calling on Jesus for years and years, asking him to do something for me that he's not yet done. I understand that. But have you first called on him as the son of David, as Messiah and Savior? Because if, if you have not, then no manner of miracle that he might do for you will really do you any eternal good. You might get healed from this sickness. You might get a few more years on this earth. But if he's not restored your soul, if, if, if he's not forgiven you of your sin, if he's not brought you out of death into life, out of darkness into light, then that's a very little benefit to you. Because ultimately you're still going to die and in your sin you'll be separated from him. But if you've called on him as Savior and Lord, crucified in your place, Risen to se secure your redemption and to declare his victory over death, hell, and the grave. Well, then you have no idea how interested he is 
in your cry for whatever it is you're suffering through. He doesn't ignore you. He hears you. And we know through the New Testament, through the writings of the Apostle Paul and Peter, that sometimes suffering is going to be a far greater opportunity for you to give God glory than if he were to give you what you want. And so sometimes he chooses to let you suffer. You know why? Because he knows even your great suffering in this life is just a little bit compared to the great eternal life that you'll experience in the resurrection. We see through this scene, Jesus doesn't ignore the sincere cries. This time, he did what the crier asked. But we have to remember, when we see that he did what this crier asked, we've got to remember the second lesson, and that's that healing miracles in the Scripture. When we see Jesus healing, when we see Jesus doing things supernaturally, we certainly are understanding, number one, he can do something no one else can do. So we need to try to figure out why that is. Okay, so that's the number one reason. I'm doing things that no one else can do in order to demonstrate to those who are watching, to those that are hearing, that there is something unique about me, and this is visual, physical evidence. But the lesson I think we need to learn here is that healing and miracles and other forms of supernatural works in the life and ministry of Jesus almost always deal with a deeper spiritual issue. Yes, it is demonstrating God's power over what God has created, but sin has broken. But most often, the miracles are an illustration of something deeper that is spiritual. Yes, Jesus can heal a blind man and give him sight. But I think the bigger message that every healing of blindness in the life of Jesus is to illustrate the blindness of those who are outside of faith in Messiah. I think most specifically, Luke is referring to the blindness of the nation. Who should have known who Jesus was more than the people of Israel? Yet they knowingly rejected. They knowingly covered their eyes and said, I won't believe this. There's no way this guy can be what Messiah is because he's not what I expect him to be. They sit in blindness. But what was it that that allowed the blind man to see? It was faith in Jesus. And the, the representative of God opened his eyes so that he might clearly see how to follow the word of God and the will of God. So yes, can Jesus heal you? Yes, he can. Will Jesus heal you? More often, he won't. Will Jesus leave you alone? Never. And can your suffering bring him great glory? Every time, if you let him. If you let it. So we see that this healing demonstrates the bigger problem, but faith in him 
freed him from his blindness, but even more than that, it freed him from his sin. Number three, the lessons that we learn from this scene is Jesus is always the most compassionate one in the crowd. Be quiet, man. Hush. Nobody cares about you. We are tired of you, Bartimaeus. Will you hush? And yet Jesus was the most compassionate in the crowd because he stopped and said, Hey, somebody bring him. He wants to talk to me. I think the lesson we walk away from there is not that just Jesus is compassionate, but I think what he consistently wanted to see from his followers was his compassion resident within them. How do you see the broken in this world? As a nuisance? As someone who needs to be round up and moved elsewhere? Or as someone for whom... Jesus gave his life, someone that God treasures dearly and that he would certainly love for you to take his love to them. The last lesson is this. Genuine faith will always lead believers to follow. You trust Jesus as your Savior. You by faith believe And then you turn around and continue to walk the life you've always lived. I don't think you got it. I don't think you were sincere. I really don't think that in your heart of hearts you truly are a believer. Because genuine faith will lead you to follow. Because you've been freed. You've been set set right. You've, You've been given an opportunity to now... Take steps. You might not run yet, but what baby does? But they'll start to inchworm, won't they? Next thing you know, they'll start to crawl. Then they'll pull up and sit up and spit up and they'll walk and then they'll run. Why? It's what babies do. Believers follow. But not just the restoration of the broken. But we see in chapter number 19, Luke shifts gears. He tells a story about a fella by the name of Zacchaeus. The scripture says that Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. He, he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said... For I'm going to your house today. Yeah. If you didn't grow up in church, just understand you don't have to look for an easy way out of here. <laughs> Children's church taught us a song about a little dude named Zacchaeus. This, this is the story. Luke tells us a little bit more about him. Luke tells us that he was the chief tax collector. Now, we've already talked time after time after time. We've talked about these tax collectors. They keep showing up in the Gospel of Luke. They hate 
tax collectors the Jews do. Why? Because tax collectors work for Rome. Rome tells the tax collector, who is a Jew, how much to collect from, the, from the, his own people. And then anything you can get more on top of that. And by the way, they won't be able to deny whatever price you set. They're going to have to pay whatever you can make more you can keep. You just got to make this base number. And then whatever else profit you can make on top of that, you keep. Send the rest to us. They hated the tax collectors. They were the ultimate, they were the ultimate betrayal. Our own people taking up money for this oppressive government that has treated us like garbage. Taking the best of us to to be made sport of. Crucified many of us to make sure that nobody thinks we can stand up against Rome. And now you're going to collect taxes, and I know you're upcharging them because you're really rich. I know what they pay you to do this job. They hated these guys. And this was the regional manager of tax collectors. This guy was the chief in the area. Zacchaeus was public enemy number one. Zacchaeus had no friends except the people working under him. And they probably hated him too because he was skimming off the top of them. Zacchaeus was a little dude that everybody wishes they could squash. Zacchaeus heard Jesus coming into town. Zacchaeus was curious to know more about this Jesus. And we don't know this. I'm I'm just wondering, because if I flip back one page to chapter number 18, we're reminded of a story that Jesus told about two individuals at the temple praying. One was a Pharisee telling God how great he was and how thankful he is that he's not like that guy. That guy just happened to be a tax collector that stood off to the side Knowing who he was and what he had done all his life. And the the story Jesus told said he beat on his breast and was crying out for God to grant him mercy. God, if there was any way that you could forgive my deep sin, please. And Jesus said he went home justified. Now what I don't know is if maybe that individual might have been Zacchaeus. Maybe. Maybe not. The bottom line is that Zacchaeus knew there was a rabbi coming. This wasn't a merchant. This wasn't somebody making money. In fact, he was having to live off of what others would donate to him. But he's interested in finding out who this guy is. But he can't see over everybody. And nobody's going to move out of the way for this dude. In fact, they're probably stepping on his toes every chance they can. As he's, trying to, as he's trying to make his way up to the front of the line, don't you know people are reaching around others to give him a jab? And he's like, okay, this ain't going to work. So he goes on ahead and he climbs up in a little tree with low-hanging branches needed to be or he wouldn't have been able to get in the tree. He climbs up in the tree just so he can get up above head level so that he might could get a glimpse of this one I'm sure he had heard about. Jesus. And as the Savior passed that way, he probably didn't look up in the tree like we sing it, but it probably was eye level with Jesus. And there was this little guy up in the tree that everybody hates. And Jesus stops. And he goes, 
Hey, Zacchaeus, first of all, how did Jesus know his name? Well, we know how. How? He's God. They don't know that yet, but we do. He turns, he says, Zacchaeus, come on down from that tree. I, uh, I need a place to stay today. I want to go to your house. And there was a collective gasp in the crowd. What? You can't do that. Why can't he do that? I'm going to tell you why he can't do that. Because Zacchaeus was as unclean as a Jew could be. He was as ceremonially outcast as the beggar, even though he had more money than everybody in the town, I'm sure, by many times. Jeez, you, you cannot go to that guy's house. I'm imagining even his disciples were asking questions. Hey, what, what's, so what's up with this guy? Like, He's a chief tax collector. I'm sure his disciples were like, oh yeah, we do that. We, we do that. We go there. That's what he does. Just like, lead the way. Zacchaeus comes down hurriedly and takes Jesus to his home. Now, what we don't know is how it was Jesus communicated the good news to Zacchaeus. I I would have loved to have heard that. Don't don't you think that would have been one that we would have probably wanted to repeat today? It's like, whatever it took to get Zacchaeus. That's the one we need to tell. It's in Luke 19. Let me tell you. Jesus didn't give us the magic words. Luke just tells us that he went with him. And as a result of whatever it was that Jesus said to him, that convinced him that even though everybody in the town hated him, this one he was trying to see was not counted in that number. In fact... I think he came to Jericho just to see him. Say so he'd do that? Yeah, he, uh, he, he had a tendency of going places just to see one. I'm thinking about a trip he made to Samaria just to get a drink of water from a woman everyone despised, yet she was the catalyst to the evangelization of the entire town. See, Jesus had a way of doing things. Taking things that were impossible and just turning them right upside down. You say, how so? Well, it says that Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord in verse number 8, chapter 19. Behold, Lord. He's not just calling him rabbi. He's calling him Lord. He's referring to him as, as, as a place of authority. Behold, Lord. The half of my goods I give to the poor. You say, well, big deal. You were rich. No, it is a big deal. Because he was giving a far larger percentage of of his resources than the law ever required someone to give as donation alms, as just gifts to the poor. And you're, you're hearing him say, I'm going to give half of my estate. So just imagine that for a second. What's your home worth? Half that. How much you got in all of your accounts? Half of that. What about your investments? Half of that. What about your automobiles? Sell them. Give half of that 
buy whatever you can with the other. That's what kind of investment he's making. And I know what you're saying. You're going, yeah, but that's everybody else's money. That's the money he got from cheating his own people. Well, wait just a second. He's already figured that in. He's saying, I'll give half of what I got. I'll give half of what's mine. After, and if I've defrauded anyone, if I've cheated anyone, and he most certainly had, I'm going to pay restitution back to them four times what I stole. He took $100 from you. He's giving you $400 back. You say, okay. So he's giving everybody's their, everybody else's money back and some, and some, and some, and some. And then he's going to take half of what's left over and give to the poor. You go, what's happening here? I'll tell you what's happening here. We're seeing the transformation of one who is repentant. The transformation of someone who has encountered the one who has life. The one who is the representative, the provider, and ultimately the sealer of salvation. And Zacchaeus is giving his life to this one. And with Zacchaeus' life comes all of his stuff. Zacchaeus is not saved because he's made a large donation to the local mission. Zacchaeus is not saved because he's making things right with those that he's harmed. He's doing all of those things because his heart has been transformed by the good news that Jesus communicated to him. And guess what? Everybody in the city's still probably going to hate him. But he is demonstrating the transformation that comes through repentance. I see five lessons that we can learn here. Number one, Jesus seeks out the worst sinners. You say, Pastor Kevin, I thought, I thought there were no worst sinners or best sinners. You're right, but that's not how we think, is it? We know it. But that's not how we process. Because we're all the time looking around going, well, I know I'm bad, but I ain't bad he is. Well, I know I talk a little too much, but she talks more than I do. Well, I, and, and then we, what's the one that, that we throw out so often? Well, I'm, hey, I'm not Hitler. Come on. I'm, really? We go there? The bottom line is, is that we might not have acted out on all of the sin resident within us. But there's enough sin resident in us to do and be far greater than any we've ever watched or heard of. But because we think in terms of better and worse, I'm just going to say to you, Jesus seeks out the ones that we don't want to have anything to do with. That we look at and our stomach is turned. That we look at and we say, they're never going to, boy, I tell you what, they're always going to be, and no. That's the one Jesus goes to. Think about the crowd. Think about all the folks in that crowd that Jesus could have went home with. And he found the one guy that nobody in the whole region wanted to go home with. And that's the one he picked. Because it's all downhill from there, right? If Jesus can transform the worse, 
then what excuse do, do we good folks have? And we know we ain't good. So Jesus always seeks the worst of sinners. If you know Jesus as Savior, you've been recipient of his seeking. Number two, Jesus wades out into the mire of a sinner's life in order to bring salvation to them. When we think about the worst of sinners, we're thinking about a gospel track or a Bible that we can just, you know, throw out. Yeah, just read that. Call me. You know. No. What did Jesus do? He got down in the muck. He got in there where folks were going to start talking about him. Now, if you just want to go with the party crowd to party... Don't say, I'm going to try to be a witness to them. Because at the end of the day, you're just wanting to go party. And you're going to be more harm than good. They're going to bring you down. But if you're going to take the gospel into the world, we're going to have to take it into places that we might not would normally go in order to have an audience with the folks that we might not ever get to see. Does that make sense? We pray it. We talk to God about it, and then we step into the muck. Going, but that's going to get me dirty. Yeah. I heard someone say this week, what does a shepherd smell like? Sheep. What, 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 does, what does a cowboy smell like? Cows. Dirty animals. Number three, salvation results in transformation. You say, wait a minute, that sounds like genuine faith always, uh, always leads believers to follow. Yeah, it does. Because guess what's happening? Nothing different in both of the scenes. we got a blind man getting deliverance from his blindness, but ultimately getting deliverance from his brokenness, and he's following the Savior. Zacchaeus could see. But he was broken to the nth spiritually. And yet, what does that transformation bring out in him? A new way of business. A new way of living. Salvation results in transformation. It may be slow, but it is not absent. If, if you're the same, if you think the same, if you operate the same now than you did years ago when you trusted Jesus as Savior, uh, you, you might have just said some words. Transformation comes. The Holy Spirit's going to do His work. Let Him. Because He's got a switch. And he don't, we don't want Him to use it. Just let Him change us. Because that's what's natural to the one who has been transformed by the good news. Number four, you're going to love this one. It's never too late to make things right, and it's always the right thing to do. It's never too late to make things right, and it's always the right thing to do. It's never too late to make things right, and it's always the right thing to do. What does Zacchaeus say? He could have said, Lord... We're good. I'm not going to cheat anymore. No, 
No, we need to go back and make those things right. But so much water's gone under the bridge. So much time has passed. I mean, we've, we've kind of already made things right between us. Yes, I kind of lied about what I said. But things are good now. Why bring up old wounds? Because nothing was addressed. What needs to be made right just simply because you are in the wrong and you're a follower of Jesus and you need to make it right? It's never too late. It's never too late. Let's do it. Let's do it today. Before the sun goes down, let's make it right. And then number five, admitting wrongs should be normal practice for believers. We don't boast in our sin. We're not admitting it because, let me tell you what I did. Ha, this is great. No, we don't boast in our sin. We boast in the forgiving and transforming grace of God. But we do admit our wrongs. Why? Because we were wrong. And we want God to be glorified and we want to move forward. I have to do this all the time. I have to do it all the time. You know why? Because I make as many wrongs or not more than you do. And I'm constantly having to look at people going, hey, I did this thing. I wish I hadn't done that. Hey, I said this thing. I wish I hadn't said that. Hey, I didn't call you when I said I would. I totally forgot, but that's no excuse. I need your forgiveness. Constantly. Why? Because I make mistakes. And I hurt people. And I let folks down. And I have to tell them. And it's evidence of transformation. The restoration of the broken guy. The transformation of the repentant guy. What are some ongoing things that we as Oasis Church have to keep doing over and over and over? And I'll give you a hint. You already know what they are. It's two of them. We always boil it down to two words. What do we learn from these scenes? If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to represent him, we've got to be involved in two ongoing things. One of them is seeking the lost and sharing the good news of salvation by faith in Christ who was crucified and risen. The second one is instructing believers how to obey God's word and live their lives as representatives of Jesus. Now class, I've done giving you the definitions. We boil it down to two words. They are reach and teach. What do we see through these scenes right here? If you're going to follow Jesus, you got to reach them by going to them. Who do we go to? The ones everybody else is ignoring. The ones everybody else is hating on. The one nobody else wants to spend time with. The one everybody else has written off. Those are the ones that we need to go and remind that they matter. Those are the ones that we need to look them in the eye and say, you matter. Why do I matter? Because while we were still sinners... Christ died for you're looking at me like what are you talking about we got t-shirts over there with them you're welcome to get one today to remind you that we have a responsibility as followers of Jesus to go reach them and then walk with them and teach them as God transforms them that makes sense all we do is follow his example and represent him with the good news and the transformational work that comes when by faith We trust Jesus. Let's stand together as we pray.
learned a lot of lessons today. All kinds of things that we've learned. Things that might need to be made right. Wrongs that might need to be admitted. Um, folks we might need to go to that live close to us that we've been ignoring for a while. Maybe finding a way to get into the muck and the mire of this community in a healthy way where we can represent Jesus to those that are, are living in the muck but need to see the light. Well, we got to take it to them and it's going to mean get a little dirty. A lot of stuff bouncing around in the room today from God's Word. I feel pretty confident that there's something for everybody. So at the end of the day, listen to him, do what he says. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you matter. He proved it by giving his life on the cross in your place for your sin. He was raised victorious to seal and guarantee your salvation. If by faith and faith alone, you'll just trust in God the Son who was sent for you. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your word. We ask that you'll help us today to hear from you. Anything that I said that has gotten in the way, Father, just erase it from their mind. Allow it to just roll out of their ears so that all they hear resonating in their heart and mind is your word. And that God, I pray that you'll give them the courage to respond obediently like Bartimaeus did like Zacchaeus did, and that they would follow that out, representing your son. Got to lift up that one who may not know Jesus as Savior. I pray that you will make it plain and clear to them. Forgiveness is available. Salvation is available. An eternal destiny and a new purpose for today is available, but it's only through Jesus. And it's only by faith. I pray that you would draw them to yourself today. God, you know what we're going to face in the week to come? We ask that you will give us eyes to be able to see those as opportunities. Give us the courage we need to step into those opportunities in order to reach and teach for your glory. Till Jesus re returns, and that's what we're waiting on, we'll just keep doing that. We love you. We trust you. Savior's name that all of Oasis Church says, Amen.